The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. It is found in Romans chapter 12, and it's verses 9 to 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Morning. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. It's a privilege to be with you today. Uh, I'm the director of discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, again, thank you for having me. And uh, special thanks to, to Russ and, and his family for uh, inviting me here. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the actor Sean Connery, but sadly he passed away this week. And uh, he was an Academy Award winner, a, a Golden Globe winner, and perhaps most famously the original and arguably the best James Bond. Uh, we had some discussion of uh, Sean Connery this week, and Todd and I even uh, noted, and Todd said that uh, it was Sean Connery who saved the Raiders of the Lost Ark franchise. Uh, so he played a, a special role in that, uh, in that regard. His list of accomplishments was long. He was a fantastic actor, and even, even he was the first person that I can remember that, uh, um, other than my father, that my mother referred to as handsome. So that was a pretty big deal in our house. Uh, he was in a movie in the 1980s called uh, The Untouchables. It was a story of, uh, based on a true story of uh, prohibition in Chicago, where federal agent Elliot Ness set out to stop the ruthless gangster Al Capone, who built an empire uh, with bootleg alcohol. Sean Connery played a man by the name of Jim Malone, uh, who was helping Elliot Ness try and figure out a way to stop Capone. And uh, this is how Malone explained it to Nest, and, and, and you'll, you'll forgive my, my shabby uh, Sean Connery impression here. You want to get to Capone, he asked Nest. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, that's how you get to Capone. That was the scene, it was a great scene. I was going to say, wow. 
Great scene. And I think the scene in that, that what Sean Connery was saying there, Jim Malone was saying, I think that mentality really characterizes a sinful element of the human condition. When you and I are hurt or offended, what might enter our minds initially is, how can I return the gesture? You hurt me, therefore, I'm going to hurt you. And it even advances beyond that because we're seldom satisfied with, with even getting even. It, to get even is to tie the score, but we don't want to get even. We want to go one up. We want to win the battle of human relationships. There's a passage in Genesis that showcases this mindset. It's, it's early in the book, in the fourth chapter. It occurs right after the account where Cain killed his brother Abel in jealousy. In the line of Cain, there was a man by the name of Lamech, and, and he sings this song. It's quoted in Genesis 4. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that a boy hurt him, and, and for it he killed him. Then he boasts, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, mine seventy-sevenfold. It's one upsmanship, if I've ever seen it, but once again, indicative of how we tend to operate. Hit me once, I hit you back twice, or maybe even more. And thinking in terms of politics, doesn't that sound familiar? If your party does this, then mine will do that plus one. What you do to me, I will do to you in return. I could give you examples, politically speaking, but I don't think I need to. I think we've seen quite a few examples over the last several years and from both sides. We tend to think and act in the same manner as Cain and those in the line of Cain like Lamech. What about the line of Abel? And I have to say as a side note, every time I, I think about this, every time we read in the Old Testament, uh, everything that we read in the Old Testament is a, is a whisper of what will come in the New Testament. Abel. Abel was a, was a shadow picture of Christ. Think about it. Abel was a man who offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, and he was killed by his brother. Did you hear that? That's an Old Testament description of Christ. So Abel's line, through the line of Abel, ultimately comes Jesus. And what does Jesus have to say about retribution? What does Jesus have to say about revenge to the 77-fold degree? Peter the impetuous disciple that he was, tried asking Jesus about this. And when he did, I'm sure he was so proud of himself. In Matthew 18, 22, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, should I forgive my brother up to seven times? And again, he's probably so pleased with himself. Jesus, Jesus, check me out. I'm willing to go so far as to forgive my brother. Not once, not twice, three times. That's even considered absurd. I'm willing to go an absurd amount of times times two plus one. Seven times, Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? What do you think about that, Jesus? And, and look how Jesus answers. It's almost like he knew Lamech's song in Genesis. He did know, by the way. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's the total antithesis. The line of Cain seeks revenge up to 77 times, whereas the line of Abel, which again is the line of Jesus, offers forgiveness up to 77 times. And to be clear, Jesus isn't assigning an actual number here to forgiveness. He's not saying 77 times, but then on instant 78, then you're in the clear. You don't have to forgive him. No, he's saying there's no limit. There's no limit to how much you should forgive your brother, the Christian. The Christian is not called to live with an eye-for-an-eye mentality. The Christian lives with a turn-the-other-cheek mentality. 
The Christian, just as we read a moment ago, is to live with a mentality that never seeks revenge, but instead overcomes evil with good. And whenever, whenever we contemplate this, it's, it almost never fails. Whenever we contemplate turning the other cheek or caring for our enemies or, or forgiving 77 times, there's always a question that swims around in our heads. Yes, of course we're willing to forgive. We're forgiving people. That's what we're called to be. We forgive. And we believe that generally, generally. But whenever we talk about forgiveness with no limit, we tend to ask ourselves this question. It goes, it goes something like this. Well, yeah, but does that mean we're supposed to be a doormat? for everyone and, and anyone. And it's always a doormat too. Whenever someone speaks of the metaphor, it's always a doormat. There comes a point where we have to say no, right? Where we have to stand up for ourselves. I'm not going to answer that question just yet. I, I want to point us to the text. First, uh, we'll, we'll look at the text and, and then we'll try and answer the doormat question. But the text is telling us to never avenge our, yourselves, overcome evil with good. So here's what we want to ask of the text. This is what we want to ask of the text today. Why do we do that? And how do we do that? Why do we do that and how? Only two points today. I only found out that I was preaching on Wednesday, so I only got two points for you. So how do we do that? Right? Uh, why do we never avenge ourselves? There's a, there's a really simple answer to this question, and it, and it goes like this, because that's what the Bible tells us to do, right? The Bible says it, so we should obey it. And don't get me wrong, that's a really good answer. I, I personally have used a variation on that answer numerous times with my own kids. When I ask them to do something, if they ever ask me why, I'm comfortable saying, because I said so. I'm dad. <laughs> you have to do it because I'm dad and I said so. The end. But I don't remember, I don't always answer my kids that way. When they're trying to challenge my authority, yes, I'll say that. But sometimes I can tell when they ask why, they're sincerely curious about my reasoning. And they're sincerely curious about the mechanics behind my reasoning and my request. And in those instances, I will give them a, a reason. Why? Because I want them to understand my character. I want them to understand my motivations. God loves us to go to his word in this manner. We ask why not to question his authority, but to know his character. Okay? God, why do you ask us to not seek revenge? Why do you ask us to not seek vengeance? Because, listen to this, is vengeance a bad thing? Would it surprise you to hear me say no? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can vengeance not be a bad thing? Or by extension, how, how can vengeance be a good thing, right? Vengeance isn't a bad thing because listen, listen to what the Lord himself says. He says, vengeance I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is a task that holy God undertakes himself. That's interesting. I like to think of myself as a, uh, a fairly handy person. Uh, I think I got that from my, my dad. My father seldom hired a contractor to fix anything in the house or improve anything. He almost always fixed things himself. And this was well before the internet age. My dad would, would go to the library. He'd find a book. He'd figure out how to do whatever he was working on. And then he would go build a deck. I learned a lot from him, and, and, and now information is at the ready, so the do-it-yourselfer can take any number of jobs. They can take on any number of jobs that not so long ago would have been unthinkable without some kind of proper training. My wife and I are in the middle of, of redoing our kitchen right now, and a number of things I've decided to take on myself. And hear me, I love doing these things. I love it. And when you do these things yourself, there's a tremendous savings involved. That's one of the upsides here. You get to save a lot of money by doing it yourself, but there's also some tremendous downsides to doing things yourself. 
If you're going to say, uh, sand and refinish your floors, this is, is this a job you can do yourself? You know, it's interesting to say, to look around the room and say, oh, yes, it is, or no, it's not, right? <laughs> yes, it's certainly something you can do yourself, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of time. And, and uh, on something like the floor, when you make a mistake, it's hard to miss, right? If you do something wrong, you're going to showcase that mistake in a pretty obvious manner, right there in the middle of your floor. And, and everyone who comes to see your floor will see that mistake right there in the middle of the floor, and, and they'll maybe even ask you, who did your floors? <laughs> Not because they're wanting to compliment you. So you have, this, you have to do this cost-benefit uh, benefit analysis. If I do this job myself, will I spend too much time and will I save money? And you have to be able to answer those questions honestly. You have to be able to take an analysis of your own abilities and be able to say, no, this one might be a stretch for me. I have to rent the equipment. I have to borrow a truck. I have to load up the equipment and unload it. I have to know how to use the equipment. I don't have any grounds here to, to practice using the equipment. you got to know what you're doing. And that's just sanding the floors. Finishing the floors can, can really expose someone who doesn't know what they're doing too. To make a long story short, I opted not to finish and sand our own floors. Why? Because I don't think I could do it well. And the results of that could be long-lasting and costly. Why does God not leave vengeance to us? Because we can't do it well. And the results could be long-lasting and costly. See, again, it's not that vengeance is bad. God is good. God is 100% good. And he says, vengeance is mine. Why? Because only he can do it in holiness. Only he can do it without sin. When you and I undertake vengeance, just as we noted at the start of our time, we have a tendency to escalate. When we undertake vengeance, we can't do it without letting sin enter the picture. When God brings vengeance, he brings it perfectly. His justice never punishes more severely than sin warrants. It's his prerogative to dispense and apply it according to his perfect justice. So you and I, we best leave vengeance to the professional. And I should say on a side note, we're really talking about something interpersonal here. Person to person. God has, has something to say about the civil authorities and, and vengeance. Paul talks about that in the next chapter in Romans 13. Here, Paul is talking person to person. And he tells us why we're not the ones who should be carrying out vengeance on our neighbor and brother. Because we're not good at it. We're not good at it. We can't do it without sin. We can't apply it properly. So we're told to leave it to him. So how do we do that? How do we do it? This is going to be our second point. How do we live in such a way that we're able to, to carry this out? That is, live with a mentality that I don't seek vengeance on my neighbor or brother and instead overcome evil with good. How do we do this? What's interesting to note about our text today is the way it's constructed. If you go back a few verses and see the thoughts that lead into the passage, we can see that Paul gives four different do not instructions. Back to verse 14. 14, do not curse. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. Verse 19, do not avenge yourself. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. So there you go, four do not statements in almost as many verses. Notice, though, what Paul includes with those do not statements. He includes the positive form within that command, too. Not only do not curse, but instead do this, bless. Not only do not repay evil for evil, but instead do this, 
do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not only do not avenge yourselves, but instead do this. Feed your enemy if he's hungry. Give him water if he's thirsty. Not only do not overcome evil uh, with evil, but instead do this. Overcome evil with good. You see, it's not just that the Lord is telling us to refrain from sinning, but he's also telling us to actively do good too. It's not just sinlessness that he requires of us, but he also requires righteousness too. Actively righteous. We often forget about that part. Micah 6, 8, the prophet tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Notice that none of these are do not statements. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. The Lord not only requires sinlessness, but active righteousness too. When we speak about what Jesus has done for us, we frequently cite the fact that he died for our sins. Yes, he certainly did that. He died for our sins, but he also lived for your righteousness. You see, if Jesus came down on Good Friday and he died for your sins, you would be sinless and you would be forgiven, but you wouldn't be righteous. Jesus lived his entire life on your behalf as a sinless man, but also as a righteous man so that you would be forgiven and declared righteous. There are two parts of this transaction. We're forgiven and we're justified. In the same manner, this is how we let vengeance go. This is how we let vengeance go. You see what the text is telling us? When your brother or your neighbor sins against you, how do we respond? How do we bring ourselves to a place where we can forgive them and live peaceably with them? We respond to their sin not by sinning. We do it by not sinning and adding active righteousness on top of it. It's a two-step process. How do we do this? We tend to say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll forgive them. I'll forgive my brother or my neighbor, but that's it. And then for some reason, we can't figure out why what they did to us is still festering inside of us. Why? Because the transaction isn't complete. Come on, that's asking too much, isn't it? Isn't that asking too much? It took everything I have within me just to forgive them. Now I've got to do something good on top of it too? That's what the text is telling us. And look, we have to read that with understanding that what's been asked of us has been extended to us. This is what's been given to us. We're not just forgiven. We're forgiven and given an inheritance. We're forgiven and given a seat at his table. We're forgiven and declared righteous. It's twofold. We're saying this week is, uh, is Koinonia Sunday. And uh, this is happening at the tail end of our series on politics. And let me, let me tie those two ideas together for you. Koinonia is a Greek word, and we often translate it as fellowship. And when we think about fellowship, we think of good times, potluck dinners, and, and picnics, right? Fellowship. But when the Bible speaks of koinonia, the fellowship it speaks of is deeper than that. As, as you may have heard Pastor Micah say in reference to the opening of the fourth CPC campus this Sunday, which is called koinonia, he'll tell you it means communion. You see, that's deeper. That's deeper. That's what the Bible is talking about when we read about koinonia, Yes, it still refers to something interpersonal, something that exists and unites you and I together, but it also refers to the idea that there's koinonia, there's communion between God and man now. How did that happen? You see, when sin entered the world, koinonia between God and man was broken. 
And there was only one way for that koinonia, that communion, to be uh, restored between God and man. It's a twofold process. Jesus Christ, who lived with reference to you, died for the removal of your sin and gave you righteousness too. And the result, that koinonia, that koinonia, that communion was restored. Jesus died for your sins and he lived for your righteousness. But you know, then there was the resurrection too. What did the resurrection do? If he died for our sins and he lived for our righteousness, what does the resurrection do? If we're forgiven and declared righteous, what does the resurrection do? The resurrection is a guarantee, okay? It's a guarantee. Think about guarantees. Some years ago, we had to replace the heating and air conditioning unit in our home. And let me tell you, I, I hate that. I hate that. When you notice that your air conditioner is starting to go out in the heat of Nashville summer, it's a paralyzing thought, right? I hate spending, I hate spending money on the AC because it's always and inevitably a lot of money. No one ever in the history of the world has ever said, that was an inexpensive air conditioner. It's never that. Never. That's never been said. So when you perceive that the AC is about to go, you live your life on pins and needles. You live your life tentatively. Maybe we can get by running it at 78 degrees. We just need to make it to the fall. We just got to make it to the fall. Don't take it below 78 degrees. And it limps along a little bit more, but eventually you got to pay the piper. So if you reach the place where you say, okay, okay, we can't avoid it anymore. Let's bite the bullet. We need to replace it. Let's shell out the money, and it's going to be more than we hope. Always is. And, and if you agree with the AC company to allow them to come replace your system, for me, the question to them back is, how long is this going to last me? How long is this going to last me? And any AC unit worth its salt is going to have a, a guarantee that goes with it. Sir, this has a 10-year guarantee. A 10-year guarantee. Wow. See, with that guarantee in place, I live life differently. What, uh, on day one, when that new unit goes uh, and it's installed in the house, do I set it at 78 degrees? Oh, no. Let's see what this thing can do. Let's crank it up. Let's see how cold we can get it in here. A guarantee changes your behavior. You go from tentative to assured. The resurrection is the guarantee. It's the proof positive that Jesus Christ can undo death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul refers to the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits. That, that, that is the first resurrection of many to come. And not only, not only does this mean Jesus will wind the clock back on death, but as uh, uh, Revelation 21, 4 tells us, Jesus will also wind the clock back for every tear in your eye. He'll wind the clock back on, on mourning, on crying, pain, and the former things will pass away. And I can't help but think of your, your pastor, Russ Ramsey, this morning as I think of that. The resurrection assures us of this. And what that means is that you and I, you and I live with the knowledge and assurance that God will rectify all wrongs at the final judgment. That knowledge causes us to live life differently. We have koinonia. We have reason to set rivalry aside and let vengeance go. We live our lives as Christ did. We reflect his image back to him in so doing, just as he restored koinonia between us and God, we can restore koinonia between man and man.
When we repay evil with kindness, we are acting as a mirror of Christ. And in so doing, as Paul tells us, we heap burning coals on the head of your enemy. I always found that image to be curious, that descriptor. And for a long time, I read this as you want to get even with your enemy, this will show them. Be nice to them. That will really tick them off, right? It's the Christian way of getting even. The image of burning coals, however, has a few different meanings in, in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms uh, 140, verse 10, David says this of his enemies, those that pursue and surround them. He says, let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. That's a picture of judgment. Burning coals is judgment. So you can read our passage today and, and, and think like that. Repay your enemy with evil, or repay your enemy's evil with kindness, and if they still treat you poorly, all the more judgment of God for them. They're subjecting themselves to God's judgment. But also, but also the Old Testament uses burning coals another way, too. And there's another image. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, when the prophet realizes he's in the presence of holiness, of the likes which he's never seen before or imagined. He realizes his own awfulness, his own unworthiness, his own unworthiness to be in the presence of the Lord. He calls a curse down upon himself. Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the prophet of God, who used his mouth, who used his lips as a means of declaring the word of God. He says, these are filthy. They're dirty. And how did the Lord rectify that problem? with a burning coal. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt taken away, and your sin atoned for. You see, a burning coal on the head of your enemy, a kind gesture in response to an evil act. What are we seeing here? It's the very instrument that God may use as a means of cleansing your enemy, of changing your enemy. Do not be overcome by evil. In other words, don't answer evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Answer evil with good. Answer evil with mercy. Answer evil with grace. When do we do this? Well, that brings us back to our doormat question we asked earlier. If we're to forgive 77 times, turn the other cheek, answer evil with good, does that mean we're just supposed to be everyone's doormat and let them walk all over us? No, I don't think that's exactly what we're being told here. But what we are being told is to look at our brothers' and neighbors' offenses against us with our eternal eyes and focus. What's most important? What's the most important thing here? Making your attempt at balancing the, at the scales of justice in the moment pointing our brothers and neighbors to something eternal. You know, sin, any sin is a declaration that says, I'd, I'd like to be God. And when we declare that we'd like to be God, it's because we think that we can do a better job of being God than God can. We can't do that. So when your brother or neighbor sins against you, they're trying to accomplish something. They're trying to satisfy a desire of some kind that can't be satisfied by sin. So, we don't answer sin with sin. We answer sin with Christ. We point them to Christ, the, to the only one that can provide real, eternal satisfaction and peace. So does this mean you're going to be a doormat? Well, 
Most of the world might see it that way, but most of the world doesn't know Christ. And doing this, responding evil with good, might just be the best way to show them exactly who Christ is. Would you pray with me? Father, I'll I'll be the first to admit this is a tremendously tall order, and I can't do it. Everything inside of me wants to see justice in the moment, and you've shown me time and time again that I am a really terrible judge. Help me to accept that. Help all of us to accept that. Help us to maintain an eternal perspective. Help us to be more concerned about showing our neighbors and brothers a picture of Jesus instead of showing them a picture of what our pride might look like. Enable us to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to expand your church, expand your koinonia, not for our sake, but for yours alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.